We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's the True Faith Newcastle United podcast. Uh, I'm Alex Hurst here by myself in Gosforth, but through the wonders of modern technology, we've got Andy Bolland and Sean. Sean, I, I don't know your surname, but we'll come back to that. And Norman Riley, <laughs> live from London, uh, live through the airwaves, through Skype, talking to everybody listening about the absolute horror show that was Aston Villa 2, Newcastle United. Neil, we're going to get into the game. We're going to talk about what went wrong and, and probably more importantly than what went wrong, how much of a bearing that has on the rest of the season, starting with Manchester City on Saturday. So first things first, Sean, what's your surname? I was going to try and remain anonymous there, but no, <laughs> all right. Right, that's the important stuff out of the way. Norman, and uh, and how did you? How was your experience of that fine festival of attacking football from Bruce's boys? Oh, it was awful. It was absolutely awful. It, it plumbed the depths of Norwich away. Um, not quite Leicester. I mean, the Leicester result in the grand scheme of things is is forgivable given how well they're going and given how utterly uh, you know how much in disarray we were when we played them um, last night was awful those results and performances that we're just going to have to get used to whilst Steve Bruce is in charge in Newcastle United and whilst Mike Ashley has got a hold of the purse strings um, we're going to get absolutely humped in some games we're going to we're going to get results we're going to get good results like we have had um, I don't think we're you know we're not we're not um, bad enough to go down, I don't think, when you look at the teams around us. I think, we've, I think we've proved to a certain extent that we've got what it takes to stay up. The league is obviously incredibly tight. You know, we're still only five points off fifth, um, four points, I think, off, off sixth. So, no panic. But the performance itself, as I say, we're probably going to get, I would say, upwards of, upwards of 10 of these in, in a season. Um, we were clueless and it was one of those where, you know... It was crying out for for a change on about the sort of twenty minute mark, and it didn't come. And um, we, we were dominated. We made what I think actually is a pretty mediocre Villa side. Um, when the first came up, I thought they'll have enough to stay up, and they will have enough to stay up. But that's still not very good. Um, but we made them look fantastic. We made Grealish look like one of the one of the best midfielders in the country. Um, and the problems that we had were evident early on. You could see. G- Basically, from kickoff, that Shelby had gone back into the "I'm going to come and collect the ball" from the the back three mode. Um, the fullbacks were were really uh, sorry. The fullback Yedlin Yedlin had one of his, his poor games. He's been great recently. There's no two ways about it. But he was really bad from from the off last night. Um, and we just looked totally disjointed. Joe Linton. It was almost like having um, one less player on the pitch. He was so utterly anonymous. Um, 
in die nothing nothing absolutely no positives at all i think in with hindsight probably the decision not to bring Shea back into the lineup was a mistake i think if you've got you know bruce bruce made comments after the match i don't know if we'll get into them about jamal lascelles but if you're going to say you know we're going to miss our best players and you've got one of your best players on the bench it kind of doesn't really make sense um i no positives and just let's get it out of system and you know obviously beat man city respond by beat man city because that'll happen clearly It'll definitely happen. I'm sure everyone listening agrees wholeheartedly. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, Norman. I think you're very accurate in everything that you've said. I'll get into um, get into the the unfortunate event that happened last night, which is you two fine lads, uh, Bonnand and, and Sean, had to <laughs> had to travel into Mordor itself, into the worst place in the world, and um, our record of 14 unbeaten against Aston Villa is is gone. How was the trip? I'll start with you, Bonnand. Uh, <laughs> Have a good one. Um, it was pretty dreadful, apart from the company from start to finish. Um, the train there was horrendous. We stopped absolutely everywhere on the way from London to Birmingham. We got we had to get off at Milton Keynes and hang around there for ten minutes, which was delightful in the rain. Uh, get on another train. Um, so that was pretty horrendous. Um, you know yourself, Villa Park is an absolute dump. Um, it's one of the worst stadiums I've ever been to. It's 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 falling apart. And one of the things I noticed was there's there's the like mould on the walls and stuff. Like people think St James's Park is in disrepair. Like Villa Park is about to crumble. Um, so it's you know it's not a very nice stadium to visit. And then obviously the, the football was dire. I mean, it kind of started how I expected. I thought they'd they'd really presses obviously it's a big game for them winnable game in their eyes I imagine but I thought we'd have enough on the break but we just we didn't really we were so heavily dependent on Maximin as I'm sure will come on to that the, the whole football as Norman rightly said was, was absolutely dreadful um, post game we went the wrong way to the train station to start with then we got stuck in a massive queue with loads of like Overly, overly confident Villa fans who are sort of talking about how you know they should have beaten Liverpool this, that, and the other, and it's like, come on, bit of perspective, lads. And there was one bloke on the train was talking about how he thought they could get into Europe. I mean, <laughs> like levels of delusion that I've just not seen in any other fan base. Um, <laughs> speaking of their fan base, they, you know, like I, I, they just they just sing everyone else's songs but put their own names in it. And I know that every team does that to a certain extent, but it was really evident with them last night, like. They just have got no crack, and they're just a hideous bunch of people. And it was as it was as dreadful as you can possibly imagine. Apart from hanging out with Sean, that was lovely. To be thank you. To be fair to us, but as well, by the way, to be fair to us, if there's any Villa fans listening who think this is just sour grapes, Bolland would have said the same thing if we'd won. So it's got nothing to do with the result. Um, <laughs> what are our thoughts of us in Villa and Villa Park? Sean, same question to you. Obviously, you know how was the away end? You know, I'm, I'm staggered. I shouldn't be staggered, but I am. That would managed to sell 3,000 tickets. In fact, the, the away attendances yeah. this season across the board from Newcastle fans, considering everything that's happened in the summer, considering a drop-off in attendance in St. James's Park, it's absolutely staggering we took 3,000 people on a Monday night to Villa Park. How was it for you? It's a, it's a monumental effort. I mean, you know, I think I, I had to get home. I never seem to get the wins on these things. I'm always doing the kind of negative losses, but um, to try and put anything on it, it was... It was brilliant from the away end. I mean, you know, 3,000 people have come all that way on a Monday night. A Monday night where we've had 14 games away from home. Thank you very much, Sky, which is nothing short of a disgrace, really. You know, for the we're basically punished for, for turning up where other clubs wouldn't. So, But it was, it was fantastic. I mean, me and Bolland 
went back to London, which was, and I got in about two o'clock in the morning. So I'm sure, you know, people driving back to Newcastle got in even later than that. It's, it, it is ridiculous at times. And oh. just take the edge off what, what could have been a quite a decent weekend game. Our, our, good, our good friend Nick got back into Newcastle at quarter to six this morning. What? <laughs> yeah, Did he walk? The bus broke down. At, oh, the bus, the bus broke down at like an hour outside Newcastle, apparently, um, which sounds horrendous. And obviously on the buses, you get all the sort of drink stops and things as well. You have to factor in, but it's the breaking breaking down at sort of quarter to five in the morning. He must just have been absolutely sick of his life going, going having to go to Villa Park to start with and then not getting back till that time. It's, you know... It's a ridiculous effort, really, isn't it? It's it's almost what it is insanity. Just about to be very honest, we had the first the first five minutes. We had a couple of chances on the on the break. He thought this, you know, if we can stay in the game, this this might be the way this will play on the break. But we just we, we struggled to create anything really after that. I think that was the the biggest disappointment of the night. You could you could tell sort of in the away end the, the frustration levels with Joe Linton are starting to you know really boil over because I, f- I feel for him in some respects because you know we don't really get the ball close to him a lot of the time but when we do get balls in into him he sort of he doesn't really have any presence he do, he'll, you know he'll jump for the ball but he's not putting any pressure on the the guy who's you know challenging him and it's you know, last night I think the sense around us there was a lot of people who sort of just had their fill of Joe Linton now and it's, it's possibly time to try something else. Um, that was one of the sort of flashpoints in the away end. Fair enough. Yeah, I think I mean we may as well talk about him since he brought him up. And, and it's not it wasn't just Joe Linton last night. I think you could say that Almiron and Joe Linton having the performances that they did, and, and Saint Maximan having three three players around a minimum whenever we got the ball. Um, it was a really, really, really bad night for the front three. Um, Norman. Almiron, there are a few people on my timeline on Twitter today suggesting that he is just not just not good enough. Uh, you know what's that? Twenty three games for Newcastle now, um, without a goal and without an assist. You know, do you think that? Do you think that he is worth persevering with, and it, and, and it will come good in terms of goal scoring contribution? Or do you think time for Christian Atto? It's difficult to be objective here yeah, because I really want him to succeed, and I do think that he's good enough. I think we saw that last season. Um, you saw a player who quite obviously and clearly needs to be micromanaged and needs tactical direction constantly, which is fair enough. You know that that some players, some players are like that, and I think he's one of them. And I'm guessing that he's not really getting that. Um, last last night, what he needed was somebody on the sidelines telling him exactly where to move. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try not to mention the previous manager's name at all, so I won't call him by name. All right, um, but. What, what you need in a, in a game like last night is somebody on the sidelines, one of the coaches or the manager, basically pulling them, in, pulling them into position saying, you need to be there, you need to be there, you need to be there. And, and that, that dialogue needs to be ongoing from the sidelines. Um, and also what you... Again, another thing I'm going to have to factor in from last, from last season, because I mentioned this last night, was we had an experienced centre-forward who obviously, I mean, spoke the same language as him as well, but an experienced centre-forward who, again, would probably be telling them Make a run down that channel. Get into the space there. Move around. Yeah, yes, you're too deep. You're too close to us. And I don't think he's getting that because obviously Joe Linton's only a young kid. Joe Linton isn't isn't a leader. Whereas we had Ron Don as that that focal point and leader up front when Almiron came in, he just slotted in with Perez and with Ron Don straight away, and he looked fantastic. There's no two ways about it. That player hasn't disappeared overnight. He's got a serious competence issue, and he's not being managed correctly. Now there might be, you know, it might be a case of well, let's let's rest him. But I think that would be a shame. Because 
we're bringing in Atsu, and Atsu, I don't doubt at the moment, he probably would do a better job. He probably would offer more because, you know, he knows the Premier League inside out. Um, he's completely fluent in English, obviously, and he's he's a different type of player. But I think Almiron is a really, really talented footballer, and I want to see players who I think are almost naturally gifted players on the pitch and doing well. And I think it's just a question of Almiron being managed better. Simple as that. Any disagreement there, lads? I, no, not really. I think I'd, I'd continue to persevere with Almiron for a little bit, a little bit longer. I think it feels like he's played an enormous amount of football and perhaps having a little break and maybe coming off the bench might suit him a little bit better at the minute. I think once he gets a goal, you can just you can see some of the things he does is just absolutely devoid of any confidence whatsoever at the minute. And you know, no one's made a really good point there, you know, playing with Rondon and experienced centre-forward. I think Joe Linton is more of an issue at the minute. And I think I said last night, you know, if he could get 60, 65 minutes out of Andy Carroll, which seems like quite a big ask, at this stage, just having um, you know a sort of wiser head up there, you know, he puts himself about a bit more, and he will give you know Almiron a bit more you know instruction about what what he needs to do. And I think if we can get that out of Carroll, I think that I definitely would be looking at it and saying, all right, can, yeah. we, can we can we ban Carroll in for? And get sixty minutes out of him, and if that's all yeah. you get out of him, then you know, happy days. Um, and then possibly look at you know either, either Gale or um, Joe Linton coming on for him. I mean, you know, Dw- Dwight Gale was an interesting one when he came on yesterday. He look, he looks like he's just short of playing any football at all. So they need to try and find a way to get him some minutes because I think he'll be really useful once we do. But he also looks a bit sort of short of confidence and sort of out out of out of, out of, out of his depths a little bit at the minute. Um, but yeah, I think you know, change the Joe Linton situation, and you might see a bit more out of Almiron. Yeah, can I just jump? I'll just jump in there quickly. There was a, um, there was a like an incident last night, and I turned around to Chris at the time and said, "This is, this is where we're missing someone like Ron Don, someone with the experience, someone with the know-how." Um, we kind of had a chance to break it. It, it. The ball was in the air on the halfway line. Joe Linton's um, his posture, he's reading of the direction of the ball, he's reading of the movement of the defender. And he's reading of the space. It was all completely wrong. And he ended up doing something that looked ridiculous. Again, that's not a criticism of him as a player. He's just looking a little bit lost at the moment. But if you if you look at the knock-on, knock-on effect of that on Army Ron, so you see you've got Ron Don in there who can, as I see, he can read the flight, the ball, he can he can turn the defender. All of a sudden, Army Ron's got the space to run into or he can kind of judge where Ron Don's going to put the ball when he wins it. That didn't happen last night. So obviously, the knock-on effect is Army Ron looking completely and utterly lost. I think I think one of the issues Almiron had last night is Villa just relentlessly targeted our right side, and and, mm. and that basically denied him and Yedlin any kind of chance to form any kind of partnerships and the partnerships that were so so well, particularly against Bournemouth two weeks ago. I also think that part of the you know part of the issue is that you know I'll I'll go broader here when the likes of Yedlin, Hayden, Paul Dummett, um, you know we'll, we'll kind of concentrate on those players. Kieran Clark, you could throw in there. When those players don't have a good game, it's it's kind of worse because a we're not a, a good enough side to carry people, but b their mistakes are quite ruthlessly punished. You know, I think of DeAndre Yedlin last year, handball, needless handball against Leicester at nil nil when in a very tight game we're losing the game two 0 at home. He pulls a wool, he pulls a Wolves player back uh, unnecessarily, in my opinion, and gets a red card, and we lose that game. There's been a few more like that, and I, I just think that push last night. Yes, it's it's a split second decision, and we didn't. I don't think we lost the game. I think that would be harsh to say we lost the game because of DeAndre Edlin, and it's not DeAndre Edlin's fault that we conceded a free kick at the near post. And by the way, Bruce's 
post-match comments were infuriating when he said, well, I've seen him do that a hundred times. Well, fucking, you know, tell the lads that he's going to do it because they didn't know. <laughs> like, I've seen him do it a hundred <sighs> times. Like, surely we could do something to stop it then. It wasn't, it wasn't one of those free kicks that's unsavable. It was, it was pathetic from, from us to concede a goal at the near post. And I know people on Sky, the pundits on Sky, were looking at Martin Dubravka, but I look at everybody there and say, how the hell have we conceded that goal? But, you know, those players, these players, Norman, you, you, you told me a great start last night that, who was it, Gail? Yeah, yeah you'll go through them, mate. Yeah. Go on, Yedlin, go through them. Clark, Dummett, Hayden, Shelby, Gail and Darlow. Seven, seven of our matchday squad last night um, and six of them who actually got, got time on the pitch were in the squad the last time we played Villa in the Championship in September 2016. Not one Aston Villa player is in their, was in their squad yeah, last yeah. night. At Villa Park, that was... Yeah, because um, I think a, cou- part, yeah. a couple of the lads played. But, but, yeah, Lansbury yeah. and Hurahan might have played against us at twenty seventeen our place. So that's that's a yeah. great start, you know. Aston Villa have, have moved on from their twenty sixteen squad. We haven't and when those players. And to be fair, you know, here's me criticising DeAndre Edlin two weeks ago, singing his praises after an excellent performance against Bournemouth. Unfortunately, you're going to get those kind of inconsistent performances from these players, particularly away from home, and we we aren't good enough to carry not just one or two players, but on a night last night, three, four, five, six, seven players. And, and ultimately that's what it was. But but I, I just think the tactical setup, that's what I want to get on get to next and get your thoughts, lads. I just thought the tactical setup was, was totally wrong. And again, I look at Steve Bruce and, you know, we'll give him, we like to think, we'll give him plenty of praise when it goes well and we'll give him praise against Bournemouth and praise against West Ham. You know, we went with the formation last night. I don't think anyone was expecting us to go with anything other than what we started with. And that's fine. Certainly I wasn't calling for a totally different formation or a different personnel. However, you know, Steve Bruce is talking about Jack Grealish after the game and how good he is and I know how good he could be. Well, what what was our plan last night to stop Jack Grealish? Because as much as uh, our side has been accused of get the ball to ASM and hope for the best, I, I very much think Aston Villa's tactic for much of that game is get the ball to Jack Grealish and hope for the best. And what did we do? What was our plan to stop that, and it was so frustrating, particularly in the second half, seeing three centre-backs pedal backwards while Grealish ran with the ball, and not one of them had clearly been told or instructed to step out, or, you know, Isaac Hayden hadn't been told to stick at him, and normally you're totally correct with your analysis of Shelby there, and I don't blame the manager for this one, because Shelby was excellent against Bournemouth, really good, you know, certainly backed his inclusion yesterday in the squad, but as soon as he gets pressed a little bit, as soon as he... As soon as he, they, they get in his face or they put pressure on him, he just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Rather than being brave, rather than thinking, you know what, I'm going to stay in this half of the pitch and I'm going to make make a difference. There was a point last night in the second half where he played a hopeless ball over the top that went straight to the keeper. He picked the ball up. He was actually behind the hole of the back three. He was the furthest player back on the pitch when he played that ball. That's our midfield. <laughs> you know, him and Hayden is our midfield. And Aston Villa had a field day last night. And the the, the distance between... Shelby and Hayden, between the two of them for a start, and between those two and the front three, was was absolutely farcical. Sean, was that something that came across, or do you think do you think I'm being hypercritical on the manager here in terms of setup? And in fact, there were so many poor performances across the board that everyone's to blame. No, I think it's. I mean, it goes back to this kind of inability to change it when something isn't going going right. And I mean, you could see within half an hour it wasn't going right. I mean, what was wrong? Within the second half, maybe just bringing Matty Longstaff on and say, "Look, just stay on him. <laughs> He's causing more problems. Just you, you know, graft your ass off and stay on him." There was no, we'll just no, we'll, we'll keep doing it. We were losing that midfield. We never had control in there. Make a change that's going to affect the game, and I, I didn't see that. And that's where we kind of need to go. Things. I mean, we'll, I'm sure we'll get on to kind of 
the changes that he did make and it there was a little bit of just we'll just throw people on who might score a goal but there wasn't any plan and it didn't it didn't foster any creative chances or it didn't it didn't affect the flow of the game or anything so it's that's where you as a manager you earn your money when you you know things aren't going your way you haven't gone to plan if there was a plan in the first place and then what do I do to change this mid-game and make it better and I just didn't see that last night and that's part of, part of the big problem we've had for you know large parts of the season it won't go well at times how do you affect the game and that's where the manager comes in <laughs> Yeah, Bond, in, t- in terms of the manager last night, how was he? How was that performance greeted by the away end? Were the people pissed off at the end? I mean, on, I think I read one report where a lot of people left early. Any frustration spilling over, or do you think people in the away end last night were like Norman said at the start of the show? Yes, it was shite, but we'll not lose lose our heads. Yeah, I think there was a bit of that. The, the, the away end at the end wasn't as you know, negative as I've seen it at, at times. In fact, there was people singing along with Sweet, Sweet Caroline, which I thought was a bit weird. Um, I think what Norman said at the start, you know, we're going we're gonna to have performances like this. And I think at this stage, given where we're at with the type of manager we've got, the type of owner we've got, people have just kind of resigned themselves now to we're going to take a hide in every so often and they're not going to get too worked up about it because, you know, there's nothing really is going to change or doesn't look like it's going to change whilst, you know, Mike Ashley runs the football club and Steve Bruce is in charge. So it, it wasn't particularly, you know, volatile or anything at the end. It was just very accepting. People were still just having, trying to enjoy themselves and things. And it was a bit, it was, was slightly odd, you know, there was large sections of the wave and singing along the Sweet Caroline, which was quite bizarre in a way, but, um, generally, it was taken pretty well. Um, I gather there was a little bit of trouble outside the ground, but it, definitely in the away end, there was uh, there was no one kicking off or anything. Um, just to go quickly back to the point that you were making before. I think the centre of midfield for us is like a real, real issue for us because mm-hmm. at least consistently, we haven't got anyone who sort of imposes themselves on the game. And last night, I thought we just got utterly dominated in the centre of midfield. I thought Shelby was pretty terrible. I thought Isaac Hayden was really terrible. But you look what else we've got in the squad, and I don't. There's no one else we've got who I think will consistently take take control of games in the centre midfield. You'd hope that Sean Longstaff turns into that player and you probably haven't seen enough of Matty to figure out how good he actually is yet. But there's no, there's no one really just to take control. They just ran straight through us at times yesterday and there was no sort of imposing, you know, big character in the centre midfield just to take the game back by the scruff of the neck and try and do something with it. Because as you say, Shelby seems to just retreat as soon as he gets pressed or, you know, someone gives him a real challenge of a game he just retreats into himself and he starts pinging long balls from deep and Isaac Hayden just becomes anonymous at times so it is a bit worrying and I think coming up to the January transfer window that's somewhere they need to desperately look and you know someone like Jagger if they can get him motivated could be ideal for that but for January we'll speculate about who it is but we definitely definitely need to strengthen that centre of midfield I know, I know it's, um, is this um, South Korean uh, midfielder apparently in hanging around could probably do a job um, I think I think you might already be at the club I don't know um, sorry I, I'm just jumping in there you're right I, I absolutely right there Bolland in terms of sentiment it's a real worry it's a real um, worry for me I mean you look at the bench last night basically we had Matty Longstaff as the other sentiment midfielder that would come on um, it, and, and the thing is as well Shelby's one of those players that you kind of know like after 20 minutes whether he's going to be any good or not and last night was one of those nights to say Shelby like if you if you if you're a brave if you're brave enough you've just got to pull him at half time because that was one of those it was one of those where it's like I it's not going to happen for him and is honestly last night I'd rather Fabian Shea came on in centre midfield than Shelby because he just knew he just knew he wasn't at the at the races or up for it last night like 
I think that's a good point, and particularly those two, Shelby and Hayden, what worries me is they were very good against Bournemouth, but Bournemouth, high press, willing to dominate possession, had nearly 70% of the ball or something like that, um, The away, despite being the away team. And although um, Shelby and, and Hayden you know, pl- played really well, I don't really think Bournemouth minded them that much. They didn't pay much attention. I don't think Bournemouth are the kind of team lots of attention to the opposition, they can just play the way they play and finish tenth. Whereas last night there was a there was a clear directive, quite quite naturally, because if you want to stop the front three, stop the service, stop John Joe Shelby, uh, you know, those two were really pressed and hassled out of possession and, and I just worry about what did the manager say to those two differently to how they were set up against Bournemouth. What were the what was the tactical difference between the setup on last two weeks ago Saturday and last night and, and from the outside looking in I can't see one. It's just same again, lads. Same again. It's not the same because if you look at Manchester City again this weekend, yes, it's a fantastic opportunity to, to play on the counter-attack, which is what we want, but you just know John Joe Shelby and Isaac Hayden are not going to get a second in the ball. And I think by making Shelby captain in Lascelles' absence, you've got Sean Longstaff back from suspension on Saturday. Sean Longstaff, one of the two midfielders that Guardiola said that Man City simply couldn't cope with last well, January. It was this year, but last season in January. What does he do? Does he play Shelby? Does he drop him? Does he take the armband off him? It's a real conundrum. We'll have a full Man City preview this uh, this weekend as it goes um, for patrons on, on the platform uh, through whatever podcast app you listen to. People pay about five to seven quid a month for five to seven extra shows a week. Uh, got loads coming up this week as usual, but we'll get into the nitty gritty then. But I just, I'm kind of starting to think central midfield, like you say, lads, is, is this area. And, you know, it's <laughs> Hayden, for example, last night had a, had a, a real tough game. You know, famous famous quote from Hayden earlier this season, it's just not working. And and last night seemed like one of those nights where, like you say, after 20 minutes, it just wasn't working. And while it was nil-nil, and while Dubravka, yes, he pulled off one fantastic save to tip the ball over the bar, you know, because Villa hadn't got in behind us or hadn't turned us round, you kind of, you kind of all, well, I certainly thought, well, it's all right, because the longer it's nil-nil, the more chance we've got of nicking the game. But ultimately, as soon as we go one nil down in these types of games away from home, we just look done, and that's the issue. As soon as we, and I appreciate we conceded two goals in very quick succession, but you look at Norwich away earlier this season, and you look at Leicester, which you know, bit of a caveat there. But they, they were two really stinking performances. Now we've got another one in there. It just seems like away from home. Once that first goal goes in against us, that's it. It's game over, and that's the opposite of what we saw against Bournemouth last or two weeks ago. But back to the back to the forwards, lads. Um, Sean. Joe Linton, Carroll, Bonin's making the shout for Carroll to come back in. Do you think that? Do you think that it, it's almost immaterial because the tactics and the tactical setup are so are so isolationist in terms of of terms of Joe Linton? Now, even if you know what does a good game look like for Joe Linton last night? Is it holding the ball up better? Is it winning free kicks? Is it taking his chances better because he has so so few touches of the football? You know, do you think an, like an Andy Carroll for a, a Joe Linton would make that much difference against Manchester City? I think probably. First up, I, I doubt Carroll can get through 90 minutes, which is a real issue. And I think it kind of goes back to the whole, I'd still probably persevere with him for now, but it's basically because you look at who who can possibly come back in. There's no one obvious. You know, Gale, I mean, maybe. Muto hasn't played for ages. We haven't seen him for ages. We'll look at Carroll. He was, he was okay when he came on. He wants to put himself about, but you can play that way for half an hour. He can't play that way for necessarily. Well, he can't play that way for ninety minutes. So, going back to kind of Joe Linton, I do feel for him because he's obviously in a new league. He's he's in quite a poor team, especially not a team set up to play to his strengths, which is a big problem. 
and he is, you know, he's, he's not lacking for effort. But probably a good game for him is winning the knockdowns and kind of playing with back to goal. And I don't think, you know, I'm, I'm sure we didn't pay 40 million for him to do that. That's that's not what we, you, you wouldn't pay 40 million for someone to basically stand as a target man and feed people off. You want them scoring goals. Because if they don't, they won't be worth 40 million. So that is a problem. But I think it's the only kind of worry I have. And it's just to kind of pick up on Norman's point a little bit, especially with like Almiron and kind of saying he, he's a player who needs a bit more coaching. Is he ever going to get that under Bruce? And if he doesn't, are we? is this a massive problem? <laughs> Yeah, well, probably because you know to to add on to that point, you know Almiron allegedly um, broke our transfer record from no goals. Um, Joe Linton, as much as I think there's might be a player in there, and he he's clearly a talented footballer. Forty million pounds right now looks like one of the worst ever deals in Premier League history, and it's still early days. But as we've said regularly. Teams in our position in the league don't have seasons to bet in forty million pound players. Mm-hmm. You know our our gap to relegation has been cut to five points uh, from seven at the weekend. Great result for Norwich winning Everton there. You know I think personally I'd much rather the bottom three were just cut off and cast adrift, not picking up points away from home like Southampton and Norwich did. So we we don't have a season for for or two or eighteen months for for Joe Linton to kind of prove his worth. Unfortunately, and you know, there seems to be this kind of, you know, would the money have been better spent on Solomon Rondon? Um, it's not outside the realms of possibility that we could have signed both, particularly with the sale of Perez. And it's really frustrating. I, I get annoyed when I see Newcastle fans on social media talking, oh, you know, Rondon wanted 125 grand a week. It's like, yes, it's not 2007 anymore. That's what good players in the Premier League command as a, as a fee. In fact, a lot of them charge mm-hmm. much higher than that. Now, I don't want to get into the ins and outs of the Rondon deal, but. As a support, we're so downbeat by Ashley's ownership that you've got fucking Newcastle fans saying, "Oh, well, it was too much money." It's like the club; the club turns a massive profit every year. It's money just sat in the bank doing nothing, and that's not when the owner takes out thirty million quid like he did last summer—at least thirty million quid. So it is that, that's the that's the real shame. Is if we'd have signed someone like Rondon, you could have had Joe Linton at forty million quid and given him twelve to eighteen months whilst we stayed in the Premier League, potentially under a better manager to do these things. But instead. We need our centre forward to start scoring goals. If our centre forward, whether it's Joe Linton, whether it's someone else, doesn't start scoring soon, we're going to get relegated. We are not going to ha- have defenders yeah. scoring every single week. We're not going to have Matty Longstaff coming in scoring miracle goals against Manchester United. We need that front three, and particularly the centre forward, across this season to score a goal. It's well, I say a goal to score goals, or we're going to go down. Agree, lads? Disagree, Norman? So, like you. Uh, I believe as well that if we don't start scoring goals from you know from forwards, then we are we are going to be in big trouble. I mean, even last night, the best chance we had was a header from a corner from a defender, um, Fernandez. Fernandez nearly pulled one back, um, and we, we created nothing. Um, Maximan is he's brilliant. He's a brilliant player, but teams can teams can just say, well, actually, whilst Joe Linton's not offering anything, whilst Amiron's looking lost, we'll just put two or three players on Maximan. That's it. We're offering no goal threat. Um, I'm Veering towards um, Bolland's suggestion of starting with Andy Carroll, even if it's just for 60 minutes, especially against Man City, because Man City, and I hear myself saying this, Man City are so bad at the back, they're so bad in the centre defence, that against them would be better off, especially if you start with Shelby, just literally launching balls up to Andy Carroll against their centre-halves. It would be better off playing a long ball game against Man City this weekend with Andy Carroll up top, and then hopefully Almiron 
and Maximum being able to get some scraps off Andy Carroll winning every single header in the eight against um, Fernandinho and, and John Stones because they're not a centre-half parent. Um, it, 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 that sound, it sounds desperate, but that's that's the situation at the moment because I, I think I think Fernandinho and um, John Stones will be kind of you know rubbing their hands at the prospect of facing Joe Linton at the moment because he isn't given anything and it's really unfortunate. And, and the point that you made about signing Rondon as well as Joe Linton, that, you know, that's, that makes perfect sense, mate, but this is Mike Ashley's Newcastle United. It's Lee Charnley buying players. There's nothing that makes any sense about it. So we're finding ourselves in a situation where we've got um, one goal in 13 games from players who play um, in four positions. It's it's a real, real concern. And and if they're going to persevere with Joe Linton, then I think it's going to be tough times ahead. And in fact, at the moment, I think it might be an idea to give him a break and either start with Carl, as I say, or even bring in Dwight Gale, because Dwight Gale will probably, between now and the end of the season, he probably could get five or six goals. Will Joe Linton get five or six goals between now and the end of the season? The way that he's playing at the moment, debatable. I think we've talked about Rondon a little bit. If you think about last season, Rondon was pretty isolated for the majority of games as well, but he was just so strong and imposing that he made himself a handful for defenders and he was, you know, he was big enough to challenge them, win the ball and then hold it up and get people, get Almiron and Perez into play and that's what Joe Linton is, uh, is lacking at the minute. We're playing essentially this, you know, the same for- formation. It's just that it's possibly not as good as Rondon but you know, he definitely would bring the, this, the same sort of bullying of centre-halves that Rondon used to and hopefully that would you know, free up Almiron and Maxman to do a little bit better. Um I had to kind of worry about if he was going to start Gale, what he'd actually offer at this stage, because I think you'd then just be looking at Shelby pinging balls from deep, trying to get it over the top for him, which I'm not sure how that's going to pay off for him in the Premier League. And what we saw last time, you know, five goals last time he played for us. So it would be a bit of a pretty big gamble, I reckon, to start playing Dwight Gale from the start. But I believe it was seven. Seven in the end. Yeah, and... And I'd take, if you were to say Joe Linton's going to score seven goals now, I would bite your hand off. Bite your <laughs> hand off for Joe Linton's seven goal hole. Uh, issue with that is. Literally, uh, literally bite your hand off. Yeah, yeah, be in jail for it probably. But I'll disagree with this slightly on the Carroll thing because what I've what I've seen from Carroll is he, he almost doesn't look like a footballer. Um, where he comes alive is in the penalty area, and you saw that with the, the, the chest down in the volley. Outside of the penalty area, he, he can't get close to the ball at times. He seems to fall over his feet. He's a real penalty area striker. I think when he came on early the season against Brighton, he kind of changed that game because we were able to get the ball up the pitch quickly. I think against Manchester City, there's a good chance that our centre-forward will would hardly spend any time in the penalty box. So it might be worth sticking with Joe Linton anyway, who has more skill with the ball on the floor and has certainly has more mobility than Carroll. You know, I'm, it's a total gamble for me. I, I like Gail or Muto because I think they have mobility, and the, the one the one thing that this team's got going for it is pace. It's literally the only thing: pace and defensive solidity, which we didn't have yesterday either. Really, why not put more pace in the front three? Because we've got so little else coming from Jolinton at the minute. I would go with Gail or Muto, but that that in itself is a massive gamble and, and no guarantee of success. And and that's where we are at the minute. Sean, I, I'd like to get your thoughts, mate, on you know. How much is this a panic stations type moment? It seems to me that this season, when we're bad, we're bad. When we lose games, we lose them very well. We, you know, concede a lot of chances. Uh, we concede goals. We're, we have a really bad goal difference at the minute. Um, I think the worst in the league, apart from the bottom three, who've all taken various humiliations um, in, in individual games. And 
there are some fans out there saying, well, you know, everyone was prison, us included, the team against Bournemouth. They haven't become a, a dreadful team overnight. It's still five points clear relegation, which is far more than most fans would have had us down for at this point in the season. You know, where do you see last night's result in context, particularly with the games coming up? Because it was a big game. It was against a, what I consider a, a really poor Villa side. Villa reminded me of that classic championship side who would string four or five passes together and just kick the ball out of play for no reason. Um, you know, very limited patience and tried a lot of things which didn't come off in the first half, particularly while they were getting frustrated. But did, are you worried, Sean? Do you think last night is just a blip, or, or, or do you think it's actually it's actually something far worse than that? That this is this is the real us. It's it's not a, it's not a blip because it's it's happened a few times before. So I mean, it, it it it's definitely not that. But I think it's it's not quite panic stations as in all is lost, we're doomed. But kind of it's as we've kind of chatted through all of this tonight, that the warning signs and the, the issues and the problems are, are, are very clear and there for all to see. And I, I guess it's just, are we going to address them? Are we going to do anything about them? Or are we just going to crack on? We, you know, we'll, we'll play Sheffield United, Southampton, Palace and Burnley before the end of the year or before, before basically Christmas. And they're massive games in terms of getting, we need to get points from them or it's going to be a very long, hard second half of the season. I think, you know, the, the inconsistencies that we talk about, I think the, the concern is just we're not learning from them. We didn't learn from the Leicester game. We we didn't learn the other week. We haven't learned today, yesterday even. That would be my worry. It's not, we're not quite at that, at that stage because, you know, we've, we've got 14 points. We still have a bit of a cushion. If we had one yesterday, we'd have been on 17 points, which would have been, you'd probably say, a good start of the season. It's just, there's those nagging doubts as we've, you know, discussed forward lines and centre midfield is and the you know the, the goals that we're not getting from attacking positions they're nagging doubts that if they persist it will turn serious so it's kind of you know does does Steve Bruce have the ability to sort this out I think we, we do have to make eventually you're going to have to make some changes this continues one goal from your front three is shocking in 13 games and it, it can't go on like that and if you you know you, you if we're talking about any other any other side and any of these teams you'd be saying they're they're in they're in a bit of bother so I think it, it it will probably take a brave decision if we're not going to get there. You know, you go back to kind of Joe Linden. Are we actually playing to his strengths? Sticking him as a lone target man. I I can't profess to have watched a lot of him in German football or anything, but it is is that what we're doing? Are we getting the best out of him because of the way we play? Do we need to change that? Does he need to say right? How do we need to play to you if you're going to stay in the side? If we're not going to do that, then you probably have to look to change. So they're the kind of things you know Bruce is going to have to think about. Well, not said. quite panic stations just yet. Yeah, Bolland, for you, if you know, if we were to lose the next three games, which is not outside the realm of possibility, whether it be Manchester City and the high flying Sheffield United, do you think Bruce has done enough in the in the first kind of thirteen games or the first twelve games to to allow fans to keep calm before the Christmas period? I mean, if we were to lose the next sort of three games after Manchester City, I think that would be pretty catastrophic and as Sean says I think we'd be in for a really tough second half of the season um, I don't think he's got quite enough credit in the bank from the back, back-to-back wins against you know West Ham and Bournemouth that you know people won't, wouldn't start to turn pretty pretty nasty about it um, it's not quite panic stations because I think one of the things I keep coming back to is I'm not sure we've even seen our best team yet and I'm not sure it feels like Steve Bruce is still trying to figure out what our best team is as well I mean you look at you know Richie and Lascelles not being at least in the squad is, you know, pretty 
pretty big blue. I mean, I imagine they're massive characters in the dressing room. Um, I thought Richie would have been great to have a, you know about last night because he can, he can be a source of inspiration, even if you know sometimes his quality is not quite there. Um, and obviously, we've got you know Cher and Lejeune to come back in. I mean, Lejeune's arguably our best defender, so that's going to be massive when we get him back. Um, so you know, there's there's still sort of glimmers of hope. I think that we're going to get a little bit better. I don't see us losing the next three games. I think we've got, you know, I think we've got a bit too much about us to to lose all three of them. So don't see that happening. But if we were to, it would be um, there'd be a lot of angry Newcastle fans. I suspect. Yeah, I didn't mean the next day. If we lose to Southampton at home, we're, we're done. <laughs> if we can't, <laughs> we can't beat them. Um, yeah, Sean, I think you made a good point before that. We're talking about these things regularly. We're talking about isolation of forwards and and no non-existent midfield. It's kind of just the same as after the Brighton game and the Norwich game and the Watford game and whatever. So that is a worry, but I still think we're we're ahead of schedule. I think Luke Edwards was spot on earlier in the season when he came on and said as soon as Rafa went, this was a relegation battle. And as demoralising and dispiriting as it is, and it is because I'm sick of relegation battles, all we do is fight relegation, even under Rafa, sorry Norman, said his name, uh, even under the previous yeah. manager, <laughs> even under the previous manager, much of the season was spent looking at the teams around you in the relegation zone and looking at the results and worrying about them and all, who would want to win, Everton and Norwich, I shouldn't have to care about who wins in these shit-offs at the bottom of the league, but would do because this is Newcastle United and, and this is probably, possibly, how it'll always be under Mike Ashley. So, yeah, it, it's demoralising, but I think finishing finishing fifteenth, finishing where we are now at the end of the season for Steve Bruce would be a kind of a, a major coup for, for for not just him, but also but also the football club. Another season in the Premier League. I, I'm, I'm firmly of the belief that if we stay up, um, it, there is more of a chance of selling the club than being relegated and being in more debt to Ashley. But we are fifteenth on no, we're fourteenth still on fifteen points. Same number of points as Palace, same number of points as Brighton, one point behind Bournemouth. So in that context, it's not the end of the world. And I, I can kind of take us being bad quite regularly if we can then put in high-energy high, high energy goal-scoring performances. And maybe in other games, maybe Man City's a, a... It's not, yeah, I don't want to be playing Man City or Liverpool this weekend, but it's it's a chance for the fast lads to have loads of grass in front of them towards the opponent's goal regularly, and if we can't find them, there will be opportunities there, like you say, Norman, against that defence, which is which is shocking. And the you know Man City showed against Liverpool that when there are fast players running running at them and managed to those players, although they are better than ours, managed to find space very easily. So it's not outside the realms of possibility that we can beat Man City. We've proved this season. In fact, before that game, the season was spoke about it many times. That was probably a low ebb under Rafa. Everyone thought, well, not everyone, but lots of people thought he was going to walk away. People thought we wouldn't sign on or on. And then we had Man City at home who were, you know, Man City under Guardiola and we beat them. So it's not outside the realms of possibility. And I really hope that there's a reaction this weekend. But we are getting a little bit, there's too many games that we'll play where we need a reaction, isn't there? Um, that, and that's a concern. Lance, I think we'll, we'll finish it off there. Um, I can't believe we've got 45 minutes out of that game last night because it was <laughs> it was that bad. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of West Ham away last season, if that if that rings a bell. Um, where we just we just yeah, we'll there as well. Yeah, <laughs> you know how to pick them. From. To be fair though, I, I hate to break I'd it. Just, to, I'd love to do a win. I'd love to do a win. Yeah. Honestly, I'd hate, I'd hate to break it, Sean. But but following Newcastle away from home, it, it is going to be like this. 
forever. Constantly. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think we'll leave it there, lads. Thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be back with the free show um, Monday night next week, hopefully with a special guest. Uh, still working out the finer details on that one. And uh, thanks to you, lads, for doing the pod and speak to you all very soon. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to that podcast. Uh, I'm going to leave you now a bit of a bonus podcast for those of you who are interested. Uh, and it is Norman, who you've just heard, Norman Riley, chatting to author Amy Raphael about her brand new book, A Game of Two Halves, Famous Football Fans Meet Their Heroes. And it includes famous names in football, Jurgen Kotlop, Pep Guardiola, Frank Lampard, Rio Ferdinand, uh, Stephen Gerrard and lots more speaking to um, famous faces, people from the world of music, politics, you know, comedy, and it's basically documentation of a chat between those people. Uh, the book raises money for the UN Refugee Agency and is essentially something that you should really consider purchasing um, this year for anyone in your family or your friendship group who is into football, which if you listen to this podcast is probably quite a lot of people. So I'll stop talking. I'm going to leave you half an hour with Norman chatting to Amy. I uh, uh, hope you enjoy it. It's a little bit of a bonus thing. Norman's good enough to go and do that, and Amy was good enough to meet up with him uh, for you good people that listen to this. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, over to Norman. This is a True Faith podcast. I'm Norman Riley. Delighted to be joined by Amy Raphael in the frankly outrageous surroundings of Soho House. Don't slightly, that. slightly, slightly different to um, the Weatherspoons and Stepney Green, which is where I do a lot of London players podcasts. So, uh, thanks for having me here for a start. Um, a little bit of history about Amy. Um, feel free to add to this or take away because um, I got it from the internet, and you know the internet doesn't always tell the truth, does it? From my website. Um, from my website. Well, there you go. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, over thirty years writing about popular culture and sport. Um, your most recent book, prior to the one that we're going to discuss. Um, was published earlier this year A Seat at the Table Women on the Front Line of Music uh, You co-wrote Steve Coogan's autobiography I'm led to believe Well, yeah I co-wrote Wrote Wrote Well, there you go <laughs> um, Don't tell Steve that Work with um, David Hay on his memoir Which I, I, I Now that I know that I'm going to buy it um, You worked in Editorial positions At Face Ellen Esquire Correct? Yeah um, you've interviewed a load of famous people, too many to list, but the fact you've interviewed Kurt Cobain nearly smacked me teeth out, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, Kurt Cobain, man, how are you? That's the one that gets everyone. Yeah, I mean, that's, well, it would do, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah, um, yeah, no, I've, no, I've pretty was, much got yeah. hairs on me, I'm standing up thinking about it. Yeah, no, that was, um, yeah, that was incredible. That was yeah. incredible. And, and it was the summer before he died, so it kind of, well, I mean, it's always clear he was going to kill himself, I'm afraid, and he talked about it in the interview. But... We, he played, Nirvana played at Roseland in, in New York and then I had to wait till two in the morning to do the interview and he came up to my hotel room um, at two in the morning and, and we watched Beavis and Butthead on MTV and he was saying those are the guys you went to school with um, basically those kind of just jock types yeah. and um, and then yeah, then got an amazing amazing interview Well I tell you what I think we could probably do a podcast alone on the fact that you chatted with Kurt Cobain. Um, unfortunately, not yet to talk about Nirvana, but we are fortunate to be able to talk about um, your uh, latest book, um, Game of Two Halves. I read it on holiday in Croatia, September this year, so 30 odd degrees, sea view. Now it's what, minus two, and we're in smoky old London, outside. sitting outside, I obviously. <laughs> um, the book 
not only did I enjoy the content, obviously what I really enjoy is the fact that it's fundraising for the um, United Nations Air High Commission for Refugees. I think it's a it's a really just cause and um, uh, kudos to you for, for that. Um, the, the book itself, the interviews are fascinating, as I say. Um, so, Amy, really what, what I want what I want to know is just the, like the genesis of the book, how how the idea came about and how you just went about putting it together, really, because you've got some big old names in there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've, I was sports editor of Esquire um, in the in the nineties, in the late nineties, and I've always been a, I've always been a Liverpool fan. Uh, I know I sound like a dodgy Cockney glory red, seeker, but um, yeah, well, I am a bit of a glory seeker to be honest, because I, I grew up in Notting Hill Gate when it was completely bohemian. And we were in a, you know, renting some shitty flat that would now be worth God knows what. But um, and I could have, I could have supported QPR or I could have supported Chelsea. But I went up to Liverpool every every holiday to stay with my grandparents, and my uncles were always going off to Anfield every other weekend. So I was begging them to go, and I wasn't allowed to go because it was all standing, and I was a girl, and all the rest of it. But it was kind of there, yeah, yeah, in in, in my blood. And of course, I uh, was going to go for Liverpool, of course, in the, in the early seventies, and not QPR or Chelsea. I mean, yeah. Um, Kevin Keegan, I mean, how are you? Yeah, you don't Kenny, convince Kenny us. Dalglish was on my wall. I mean, yeah. I had Kenny Dalglish next to David Soul on my wall, which is an admission, but there you go. <laughs> Starsky and Hutch in Liverpool. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I was... And then in, in June 2016, when the referendum for um, Brexit happened, I was... I, post, I always postal vote in case I'm away for work. And I postal voted, obviously, to remain and... I was on holiday in Italy and uh, my daughter, I've got a 15 year old daughter, well she's 15 now, but she was back home with her dad and I was, I was away kind of on holiday but working and, and, and I remember just being so horrified by the result of the referendum and, and, and immediately feeling like she kind of, my daughter was in another, on another continent, like mm. she'd kind of immediately mm-hmm. been kind of cut off from me. and. I speak Italian, I speak French, I, you know, I did an Italian degree, I love going to Europe, I think I'm, I, I class myself as European before, I class myself as being British or English, and and I just felt like we've got kind of, the country kind of shrunk, and it felt to me like a vote to close the borders, mm-hmm. and that was kind of one element of it, and then on that same holiday I was looking at stuff online, you know, when you're, you're lying by the pool and you're supposed to be doing nothing, but you're reading hardcore news in the in the American press and and I saw these I saw this picture of a bomb crater in Aleppo in Syria that had been that filled with rainwater and these lads were diving into it Mm -hmm. um, using it as a kind of diving pool and just through the luck of geography I was sitting by a pool in Italy free to move Uh and they were making the best out of a really shitty situation in, in Syria and then I started, so I, that kind of stayed in my head. And then, and you know, they were having a great time jumping Aye. into this pool as well. And then I started, I saw some drone footage of two very young lads kicking a football around. Again, I think it was um, Aleppo, it might have been Homs, but kicking, kicking football. And I, I, there were these two lads kicking the, the, the ball back and forth and back and forth and really, really focusing on this game. And, and all the buildings around them had been bombed there was nothing left and yet they were playing football and I started thinking about how many times I'd seen kids playing football in refugee camps how football's a universal language and 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 then I started thinking you know what 
we just we just it felt like for me Brexit felt like a, a vote pretty much to close our borders it felt like a really shitty nasty thing to do and I I you know we all give what we can to charity but I felt like I wanted to do something a bit more mm -hmm. than that so I started thinking well what can I do and just out of the blue I thought oh I can you know there's this thing of football being a universal language and maybe I could get famous football fans to interview their heroes it just kind of came out of nowhere like that and and I probably shouldn't say this because it, it kind of undermines the whole ethos of the book but I also just wanted to get in a room with Jurgen Klopp right who doesn't <laughs> um who doesn't want to get in a room with Jurgen Klopp <laughs> in the in the best possible way of course yeah to pick I his mean, brains you know, Aye. Yeah. um so getting it, getting it kind of off the ground, I guess it's a case of you, you put an idea to a publisher or your agent. Um, it could because for me, what fascinated me obviously was the, the, the David Morrissey involvement. I know that David Morrissey's a Liverpool fan. He's a cracking actor as well, obviously. Um, but, but how did well, how did that come about? Well, I went. I've interviewed David Morrissey a lot of times over the years and been to Liverpool games with him and, and, and so on. And I, he's a really good guy, and he's very. Um, for me, he's, polit he's politically sympathetic. He's, he's very left-wing. He always has been. Um, doesn't make a big deal about it. Mm -hmm. It's just the way he is. And so I went to him in the first instance, and I said, "Look, I've got this idea for a book, but I don't know which charity we should work with. Um, you know, obviously, I want to raise money for refugees. Um, I want to keep the conversation going about refugees. As importantly as raising money." Mm -hmm. Um, and he immediately said, I'll do what I can, but if you're going to do this, you need to come with UNHCR on a, a ground trip. You need to actually see how refugees are living right. and what UNHCR are doing, because otherwise you're kind of, you've got no perspective on Aye. it. So I went with him to, uh, we, we, we went to Beirut and we went and met a um, couple of, or went to, flew to Lebanon, went to Beirut, flew, you know, um, had a, went and met some families who were living, some Syrian refugees who were living in a shopping, disused shopping mall. And I mean, I don't even, I mean, you know it's going to be awful, mm -hmm. but you go there and you just, it's just horrendous. And then there's that element of kind of voyeurism as well, yep. where you feel really bad going and looking, but you kind of got to see. Um, and this place was absolutely spotless and you know they made us coffee and they were and the, but the kids were just I mean the kids were just it was just blank blank face yep. most of them um, and then we were we went we met a couple of other families in um, Beirut and then we went out to Baca Valley to the to the refugee camp and, and I was really impressed with I know there's that the, it's very easy to be critical of the UN I, I totally get that but the psychological support these kids were being offered the fact that school buses were coming, were, in fact, when we were there, school buses were dropping them off. And the one thing that all the parents I talked to said is that we don't want our kids to be sex trafficked and we, and we want them to have an education because they could see that education was the only way Aye. to get them out of that. So I decided to go with UNHCR uh -huh. and we had to have a sample chapter uh, to, set, to sell the book. So I, 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 I spent ages talking to Stephen Gerrard's reps um, and got him and David Morrissey together for the first chapter. We met up with Gary Lineker, David and I met up with Gary Lineker and asked him if he'd write it forward and also open his address book because otherwise you're kind of dealing with you know 600 layers of protection yep. before you even get to yep. these people. But it was so brilliant that Stevie G just said yes and, and 
obviously for, for I'd never met him before David had met him a few times and I was just in bits but he's so shy mm-hmm. um, so, so that, that's how it started basically that was the kind of beginning of it and in fact a few publishers said that they, they wouldn't buy it because football's too tribal and people will only read about their own teams who knows who knows but um, you know the publishers themselves have lost now because the, the book's brilliant and some of the interviews are, are really really insightful um, and I do like the fact you've said that Stephen Gerrard's um, shy yet he's managing Rangers which is paradoxical isn't it um, it really is but um, the I mean there are some real real standout moments in, in there for me but the, the format um Obviously, you said it's uh, kind of. I suppose it's celebrity fans interviewing interviewing footballers. Um, any kind of knock on effect from the Gerard interview? Did you did you think all right? We've got Stephen Joe, we've got David Morrissey, Garrett is going to do this. These are the people we're going to we're going to specifically target. Did you kind of draw up a list of the people yeah, that you yeah. wanted to target? We had, a, we had a list that was kind of evolving all the time, um, and 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 there were people. There's people like I, I, I said to you when we were just chatting before that we really wanted Cantona and in fact we had I had Danny Boyle lined up to, to do Cantona which would have been absolutely amazing because obviously Cantona mm-hmm. acts as well and I had to really I, I'm Danny Boyle's biographer so I had, to, I had to really twist his arm and he agreed to do it and then Cantona wouldn't do it because he's already um, affiliated with another charity a, a brilliant charity called Common Goal um, so it's fair enough Aye. so you have this list that evolves all the time because because some people ignore you don't get back to you other people say no yep um, and of course you've got it's a logistical nightmare getting two very well known people in a room yeah. together because by their very nature they're they're dead busy all the time so. well logistics logis- I was going to ask you about logistics you I believe were more or less present it's uh, the majority of the interviews all right so apart from, uh, apart from um, Val McDermott John, maybe Val McDermott and John uh, Glynn, which clashed with something else so that, that's another question the, um, the process of doing those interviews or being there being present at those interviews how, how long did it take to I mean how much time did you spend doing it it must have just been this really well, it, concentrated amount of time that you were doing this well I mean it was a huge it was a huge yeah I mean it, basically every, on both sides you, ha- you had to submit questions aye so I had to do all the research and submit all the questions say, say for example with Pep Guardiola and Johnny Marr I had to provide all the information and questions for Pep to talk to Johnny about or just for Pep to know who Johnny Marr is um, I mean he knows who Johnny Marr is but you know to know a bit more about turns out that he knew, he knew who he was quite well didn't he yeah, 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 he, did. yeah. he did um, and then and then all the, and, and then vice versa so you know you had to submit all these questions so you had to more than know your you know you had to you had, I had to read every book that I could possibly read and, and be over researched and also you know I mean it was lucky that I did because because in the when, when Pep and Johnny met um, at, at the Etihad, um, Johnny freaked out after half an hour and just said, right, I'm going. And we had an hour, which is, you know, it, it taken more or less a year to get Aye. to get that. And I was like, Johnny, you can't go. And then, it, and then I had to ask the questions that I had lined up to, before he kind of could ask questions <laughs> again because he just freaked out. Freaked out in what in the sense that because he was just it was, because it was in awe. Guardiola. Yeah, he was oh totally my dear, is that amazing? I know, and I was just like, but you're Johnny Marr. How are you freaked out by It's incredible, isn't it? It's incredible. So, so um, and he's very charming, Guardiola. Oh, right? he's really, really charming. So, and not in a kind of lascivious way, just very just very, sound, just yeah, just a nice guy. Yeah, which I hate, I hate to have to say, but um, and also it was, it was it was funny because I was doing 
Jurgen Klopp and John Bishop the next day. So having kind of consecutive days. And this was just before the title race really heated up. I was smack in the middle of it, right? Yeah, it was just after the international break. Uh-huh. So um, yeah, so it was. It was. I mean, I really didn't mind taking up a bit of Pep's time, but I felt really bad taking up Klopp's time because well, you, know, you just think this is an hour where he could be working, uh, working Klopp, with them. Klopp's, Klopp will get. Klopp is so good he can make the days twenty five hours long. I'm telling you. Um, so. Uh, Interesting. Um, the Guardiola interview was brilliant. I love the Klopp interview. I love it. Um, as I see it, David, um, uh, Klopp's just... Um, he's so politically engaged. He's so on the ball. Everything he does, you know, refuses to speak to the sun. He's just, he just gets it. He gets Liverpool. He gets the fans. The, and it, you can see it. It's, I mean, I can only only describe it in terms of how I felt when we had Rafa Benitez as manager. I just felt, oh, yeah. or Bobby Robson, you know. You just feel that somebody's got you, kind of got your back. Um, and... Klopp, I thought there was some standout moments. Um, just give a little, a little insight in the interview, the, the talk sport. To tell us how we learned English, just tell us how we learned English because I think it's brilliant. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, he, he's not a linguist. Um, and you can tell, I mean, his English is very funny, actually, but he's not a natural linguist, unlike many, many Germans. Um, and he, he, when he, when he got the job, he, yeah, he basically driving to him from Melwood. He would listen to talk sport even though I can't quite remember what he said but I'll paraphrase even though they were talking utter shite I know what he said um, he said it's bullshit it's bullshit yeah, yeah okay it's bullshit even better so uh, which actually taught when I yeah anyway <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's not go into that let's not go there but um, yeah and I mean and, and, and everybody had um, copy approval Aye. and he took out one sentence and I thought the talk sport thing would go I thought all this other stuff would go. He took out one sentence. I can't tell you what that one sentence. No, no, is. off the record, like he took, he took, yeah, one sentence, and that was it. Wow. So you know, you, you think these guys are super controlling, um, and obviously I did a careful edit, but the goodwill was huge, absolutely huge. And of course, they talk very differently because you know Jurgen Klopp talking to John Bishop is very different from me as a Aye. as a journalist talking to Jurgen Klopp, and and there's a kind of mutual respect there that there might not be. If I, you know, with him talking to a journalist, Aye. because he's he's waiting to be tripped up, and uh, whereas John Bishop wasn't waiting for him to, you know, wasn't waiting to trip him up. He was just there as a fan, basically. What you're seeing is journalists are like bastards in general, and John Bishop's just a nice bloke. <laughs> No. I wouldn't go that no, no, no. I wouldn't go no. denigrate my whole profession. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, there's an element of it. I hadn't really. Sorry, Jurgen Klopp thinks that, not me. I, I, yeah, well, I mean, I hadn't really thought of that. I hadn't really thought. Well, I, I, I kind of had, but I hadn't realised how much easier it would be once you got in the room with, with these people. That the kind of dynamic would be, would, be, would, be, would be like that. But also, it was really hard for me having been a journalist for so long not to butt in sometimes of course. because I really sometimes the conversation was going down a weird way and I did butt in but you and I did kind of you know if, if they were if it was the conversation was getting too if it was digressing too much or whatever I would butt steer in it. and steer it but sometimes this, you know like when Frank Lampard and Noma Jalili were talking about John Terry yeah I would I kind of wanted to say yes but you know, I wanted to remind them of the allegations yeah. of racism, and yeah. And, and yeah, it wasn't appropriate. So I just had to let them have that conversation, um, and it wasn't my chapter. You know, it was their chapter. And equally, when Klopp, I could see when Klopp basically just sat down and talked about being German and the guilt of being German, 
Um, yeah, it's a very moving. It's what a very, you know he very talks. moving chapter, yeah. uh, and it's a very passionate chapter because, of course, he's very passionate. But I could see John Bishop's face, just like pure horror, that the you know half the interview was going to be him talking about uh, 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 about politics. And I was like, no, no, it's fine. It's what yeah. I want. You yeah. know, because you also get him talking about Mosala and Liverpool and you know why it works and and. Dortmund and all the rest of it. Yeah. You get all that stuff as well. Absolutely. I think um, to a certain extent, the the Omar Jalili and um, Frank Lampard interview you just mentioned there, in a way, after after having read it, I think it's a good thing that you 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 didn't kind of step in and challenge it because what it does is it allows the reader to ask those questions yeah. himself. You know, yeah, you're yeah, thinking, yeah, yeah. hold on a second, mate, you've missed this out, and, and that's good. You know, it's not you're not just reading this kind of formulaic discussion. Um, it's but also you're not ticking you know it's not like Emily Maitlis interviewing Prince Andrew Prince Andrew yeah. and kind of ticking stuff off a list because that's a duty of care it's not like it wasn't like that exactly it was a very it's conversation different, it was, you know it was far more organic yeah exactly and, and, that, and that's why that's why it works so well I think um, and then and that, that's where you get you know Johnny Marty's in Pep Guardiola about how many cashmere jumpers he's got yeah a lot <laughs> The trousers with Pep that get me. He's always got those trousers, you know, Those like the on cargo pants. Can, yeah, but like with yeah, cargo pants with like pockets on the knees and yeah, like zips but I bet and stuff. They're really expensive. But they're really yeah, expensive, but, but it's like, mate, how are you? You're and really good looking, man. We wore all of last season with the well. kind of like sort of rubbery leather patches on yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. What was that about? Who knows what goes on in his head? I mean, the man is a genius, so let's just <laughs> let's just let him wear his cargo trousers and um, leather patched cardigans. Who are we to judge? The couple of my favourite interviews. My, favorite, my absolute favourite, um, Eric Dyer and David Lammy. I love David Lammy. David Lammy. I used to live in Tottenham. I love the Borough. Um, I think Lammy's a really good politician. He's actually. It's it's interesting to see how he's grown from being a Blairite to this like leftist in the last sort of five seven years, five to seven years, which is just brilliant. Um, I love how he's he's grown as a politician. I love how brave he is on Twitter, um, and you know the social media platforms on TV. And you're thinking, all right, Lammy's going to interview a footballer. It's going to be it's going to be formulaic. Eric Dyer just blew me away. Um, well, that was that was really carefully curated. Um, I think David Lammy want David Lammy said yes immediately. Uh, I think he was the quickest to. Re- well, his office said yes immediately. He, it was the quickest response. It came back within about ten minutes. He's a massive top environment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think his initial thoughts were probably Harry Kane and Harry Kane because he loves Harry Kane. And 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 I I just I just thought that that was too obvious. And also, I don't know. Um, I mean, Harry Kane might be very politically engaged privately, but publicly he's not. And I, I, I have my eye on Eric Dyer because he grew up in Portugal. Um, bilingual he, education, he, yeah, all bilingual. that. Yeah, yeah. He, you know, it, it, it just felt intuitively like the interviews that he'd given that there'd be a better, there'd be a better match. And and in fact, it was the those two were just destined never to meet because when we, uh, I went to. Um, up to meet David Lammy uh, and we were on our way to it was he was talking to his constituents in the in the library in North London and we were just about to get on the tube and go up to Tottenham's training ground and we got a call from Tottenham saying that Eric was ill um, and it turned out that his Eric's appendix has exploded oh, shit. so we were literally like, um, and then and then we were going to do it another time and he got flu because his immune system was compromised and then finally we did it in Parliament so I was really glad in fact that it hadn't happened at the training ground uh, of course. he then came to Parliament and he was so excited about going to Parliament so we did it in in 
in Parliament, and and I had no idea he was. I mean, I could lie and say I knew all this, but yeah. he, I had no idea he was doing an open university course. I had no idea his first question, what his first question would be. I had no idea that he was studying the London riots. I, I, I mean, it was just. Yeah. It looks like. I mean, it was kind of half well curated, but it looks like a stroke of genius from me. It really yeah. wasn't. It was just luck that all my intuition was right. It's interesting, Dyer's one of those players who obviously this interview, um, there, there is, again, a stereotype of footballers. Footballers, you know, they don't do education, they're very bright, even though, you know, history tells us that loads of players have gone on and do degrees. I mean, Newcastle goalkeeper Steve Harper, for example, he went and he did a degree when he was playing. Um, look at someone like Didier Drogba, you know, these are, there are a lot of them who are highly intelligent, but there is, there is this stereotype. Um, then Dyer comes in and asks a question about the universal basic income, which just, as I say, that, that blew me. It was great. Um, some of that that's close to my own, my own, my own personal and um, political uh, opinions. And then Hector Bayerine, who I think everyone knows that Bayerine is it, he's, he's almost like bohemian for a footballer. There's something yeah. kind of otherworldly about Bayerine, and he said that. And again, this this kind of ongoing. Um, criticism of you know when footballers get involved in politics that they shouldn't you know the two should never be kind of intertwined um, if anyone's looking at what's going on in Chile at the moment that that it just goes to show you the power yeah. of football every Chilean footballer is basically criticising the Piñera government there are these shows of solidarity and, and it's great to see somebody like Bayerine come forward and say we've got a platform we can we yeah. can use this yeah as he did on Twitter I mean, this, this is subsequent to the book coming out, but he 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 will tweet about abortion bills in Alabama. Social I mean, justice causes. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't yeah. he doesn't care. I mean, he I know he, he does talk to his advisor about it before he does it, so that he gets the wording right. I like but his it is advisor. not it is not managed in a clinical way. Yeah. It's just because although his English is brilliant, he just wants to get the language right because it's not his first yeah. language. So he doesn't just kind of sit there, you know, yeah. and fire off these missives to social media. But I think. Yeah, I mean, he's completely engaged politically and not scared to do so. And yeah. it hasn't done him any damage at all. It's just, you know, if, if, if anything, it, it, I mean, I don't know that Tottenham fans would be particularly loving him, but, you know, it, it, it's, it, it can be done. They yeah. can use, I mean, uh, you know, it's like Eric Cantona was saying in The Guardian today in an interview with Sid Lowe that footballers can and should use their platforms yeah. and, and I think he's right yeah it's, 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 it's a lot more entertaining and interesting and engaging and seeing how you know I had big pasta for tea yeah, yeah. No, absolutely but I mean going back to Eric Dyer he, he even talks about feeling guilty for the money he earns yeah I don't think I have seen a lot of footballers and I've never met a footballer who's, who's actually on record said that said that the, there's guilt around it suddenly earning yeah. that much money it's good. It, it, it puts the, the, the book, what, what the book does throughout the book is it, it, it really presents like the kind of human face away from the celebrity of the footballers. Um, and that's a, a, an aspect of enjoy. I mean, Ian, Ian Wright's in there. Ian Wright, just despite the fact that he's an, he was an incredible footballer, he's a celebrity, he, he always comes across as being very human because he's just so open. Um, but it's rare that you get footballers opening up quite the way I think or people involved in football quite the way they have done in, in, in this book. And that's it, it's something I really enjoyed about it. Um, the other question I was going to ask you was um, for you as a, as a you know as a female working in a, a heavily male dominated industry football reporting sports journalism I mean obviously you've done so much more than that but you have worked in football and yeah. sports journalism um, the Claire Bolden interview I, f- I thought found really interesting um, she mentioned still feeling a little bit on edge when she goes to Premier League matches now which really shocked me I don't know is that is that something you can empathise with or what, did, it, did it shock you equally as well? 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's it's. I think it's because she doesn't go to that many. Aye. Um, but I think no, I think she got a point. I mean, I, I think she 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 talks to Lucy Bronze about. Um, whether or not women's football and this is a big this is a big debate but whether or not women's football should be emulating men's football mm-hmm. should be trying to get the kind of crowds that men's football get um, and I mean I, I go and I live in Brighton and I go and watch Brighton sometimes and I always go and watch Brighton Liverpool um, and Brighton fans will hate me for this but <laughs> in the Brighton bit and I you know I shut up I don't I don't react when we score five goals uh, but there's nearly always some guy behind being racist about Salah. Nearly always, and I think maybe this season that wouldn't be allowed. Yeah. But people just go ha, 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 and kind of, you know. And I'm thinking, if you do it one more time, I'm going to get go and get the steward. And yeah. you know, and that thing of whether I find it very hard to know whether or not I should do something if no one else is doing anything, and if he's there with his six mates and I'm there as a woman, you know, with my kid, who my my daughter is a Liverpool fan and, and um, plays football as well um, just for a team in Brighton but you know I, I, if, I think if I was a bloke at a game I would go and tell mm-hmm. a steward so I kind of think there's that feeling of not yeah. quite being in the same position yeah. as, a, as, as a guy uh, especially if you're going to watch football with your daughter um, but I don't I mean I go to Anfield and I don't feel yeah. threatened I yeah. don't feel anything I just yeah. feel well apart from passion for my team but I don't you know, it feels very, very. It feels very, very safe. Yeah. Um, but then maybe I shouldn't be sitting in the Brighton bit. You know. No, no I mean you shouldn't. It's, it's frankly outrageous. <laughs> um, uh, the one more thing from me um, before I ask you about your standout moments. Getting Raheem still on board now. We've written on True Faith about. Um, the whole narrative around Raheem Sterling that's kind of been constructed in the last two or three years, especially from right-wing newspapers, i.e. The, the Sun, um, putting out stories about them that were patently untrue. We, 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 you know, ground that we've gone over before, um, a, a true faith. Um, how did you manage to get him on board? I mean, it's that well, is well, that, he wasn't that supposed is a to, coup and a half, isn't it? He, he wasn't supposed to write the forward. He was, he was um, paired up with a comedian. Um, and we... He, he just I, I just was talking to his reps for again six eight months um, lots of suggestions about who he should be paired up with mm. I thought I thought it'd be really good I thought it didn't matter with him and it didn't matter with anyone actually it could be an England fan it didn't mm. have to be a City fan um, I wanted to pair him up with Dave I wanted to pair him up with all sorts of grime artists and his management weren't up for that and eventually I came up with a comedian and we had a, we had a time and a day in 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 Manchester, and I couldn't believe it was actually going to happen. And it was, you know, they were absolutely his reps were totally totally up for it, and the comedian couldn't make it. Oh, stupid so, comedian! So I think um, I think if I, in all fairness to the comedian, there was a Grenfell thing yeah. going on that, that I, I don't know. I never got a full answer on that, but it didn't happen. Yeah, and I had a kind of half an hour window of thinking, shit. I know we had Raheem Sterling. We can't lose him, and so I just I just WhatsApped his 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 management and said, "Will you write a forward?" 
and it's to, brilliant. Sit, to sit alongside Gary Lineker's yeah. and, and they wrote back straight away and said yeah I'd love to and he you know what is in the book is what he wrote yeah you can tell it's brilliant um, it's in his it's in his language he's a bright lad uh, education does not mean as we know means jack shit uh, you know he's an articulate bright passionate boy and when I read it I cried because it's about his mum yeah and it's about what he feels when he pulls the England shirt on and I mean, I, I mean, read it and, and yeah. don't don't you know pretend you've got a bit of dirt in your eye because it really is moving. Yeah. Um, and and I think in a way, the fact that he he, he did it that forward and didn't do this interview with the comedian is probably you know it's probably a win. It's yeah. Probably a, it's probably a good thing. Yeah. No. Because although it's very short. It, it's absolutely passionate. Yeah, it's not. It's it's a it's a brilliant start of the book. The Gary Lineker forward as well. The Gary Lineker interview. I'm not even going to go into that. It's so so good and so moving that um it, it, the, the Lineker interview itself is worth the price of the book alone. Simple as that. Um, couple of, couple of final questions. Um, tell me which one of the discussions you moved you on a personal level most, and just I guess ultimately what you hope to uh, hope to achieve from the book. Um, I mean, I think when when Gary Lineker interviewed Fard Salah, who was um, uh, uh, is a Syrian, played football in Syria and and has been rehoused here with his family. And, professional, and, um, professional goalkeeper. Professional yeah. goalkeeper, yeah. Uh, when when because I thought you know Gary could have interviewed anybody mm-hmm. um, and I wanted him to interview somebody but I just thought okay you know he's the one who's putting his head above the parapet and tweeting uh, about refugees and getting ripped apart for it day after day you know he can go and talk to somebody and it was it was so hard for Fad to sit there and talk it was so recent it's such yeah. recent history um, for him to sit there and talk about it was really I mean it was a privilege to 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 hear that and and Gary just being so tender. Um, and, and kind of just a brilliant interviewer, just a masterclass in interviewing, actually, which is really annoying. He can he can play football that well and interview that well. So that, that was that was that was brilliant. And I mean, what can I say? Klopp. Yeah, you know, of course. Listening to him talk talking about being German and nationality and how how he gets Liverpool. Yeah. I mean, I just couldn't. And and also actually. Before and after the Klopp interview, I, I love James Milner was running around um, trying to find chocolate because they they got a massive, you know, health regime at, at Melwood and, and he they had to lock the chocolate away. But there was Millie trying to find out where the chocolate was, which made me laugh. And and I was like, I had a chat with Oxford Chamberlain after the Klopp interview about his injury and how difficult it is it is dealing with injuries. So you know, and the mental health issues around yeah. around that. So. It was just, it, that, I mean, that for me was, as a Liverpool fan, was of course. was incredible. But I think overall, I, overall, I, I mean, maybe, I think the fact that nearly everybody we asked to do the book is in the book. Yeah. Um, and and I think that is testament to people actually giving a shit, even though yeah. it doesn't feel like sometimes like people do I think enough people do actually give a shit about other people and don't want borders to be shut and you know they wouldn't have done this book if it hadn't have been to raise money for displaced people I mean they wouldn't have just done it for the sake of it so it wasn't done for vanity it was done to keep the conversation going about refugees brilliant thank you it's in a it's a, it's a fantastic book I thoroughly enjoyed it and um, people listen to this go out have a look at it go into a bookshop take a look at it if you like what you see then, then buy it it is really really worth it um, Jamie thank you thank you very much whether you're a world class athlete or a podcaster like me 
we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's U-N-I-F-Y-D healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.